This morning, we have the privilege of Alan Gomes being here to preach this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 for us, for which I'm grateful. Um, I first met Alan before I was ever at Grace. I was actually, in 1999, uh, a second-year Talbot Seminary student, and I took his historical theology course and learned a ton. And uh, after three semesters of straight A's, He knew I was going to tell this story. His class was my first B. I missed an A by one-tenth of a percentage point. And so I emailed Alan because I had put in every, I turned in every assignment on time. I've done every reading. I'd taken every test. And I appealed to him to bump that grade up just that tenth of a point to get an A. And I got an email back from him that basically said, if I bump you up, what about the guy who was 0.2% below the A? Fair point. So later on, I got the chance to share that story with his wife, Diane, and her response was, oh, Alan. He stands by that decision to this day. But two years later, Betsy and I ended up here at Grace and realized that this was uh, the home church for Alan, Diane, and their boys. And uh, Alan was actually at the time leading a group of high school students two nights a month through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, one chapter at a time in his living room, and they were eating it up. And I remember thinking, this is a youth group I want to be involved with. Um, So coming on almost 20 years, I've known Alan and Diane, I've grown to love them, uh, forgive him for giving me that B, um, and deeply thankful for the ways that they minister here at Grace as Grace Group Shepherds and through Alan's teaching, etc. Anyway, one of the reasons that Alan is preaching this passage even this morning was that in 2018, he published a book called 40 Questions uh, About Heaven and Hell. And he was telling me that in the course of studying and writing the book, this passage in particular was was one that impacted him um, because of the resurrection hope that it holds out for us. And as you're about to hear as he preaches, uh, he wants us to understand that misunderstanding this passage can actually diminish our view of our eternal hope, while understanding it correctly can actually sharpen our longing for our imperishable inheritance that we've been singing about. He even told me that this passage has loosened the grip that things of this world has had on him and made him long even more deeply for our eternal future. So may the Lord do a similar work in us as we hear from him this morning. I'm going to pray for him as he comes up. Lord, we need solid hope today. Uh, Lord, I pray that this morning you would clear away any um, empty, um, uh, uh, lesser images of our eternal future than the future that you really have in store for us and that you would help us to understand what does it truly mean that made like him, like him, we will rise. God, I pray that you'd bless us through Alan's preaching this morning. Spirit, fill him, help him to preach to all of us in our living rooms and homes. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. I didn't realize how much I traumatized Kenny. I, I might be remembering it wrong, but I thought I gave you an A minus. Was it a was it actually a B? B plus. B plus, okay. Well. So don't exaggerate and say it was a B. Okay, very good. Well, our uh, text for this morning is 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 35 to 49. So let's uh, first read the text together. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. 
And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. There's little doubt that our culture is becoming more secular. Now, a majority of Americans still profess some kind of belief in God. They still pray, but most recent surveys have shown that such beliefs and practices are declining. And yet, there's one really surprising fact that runs quite counter to this, and that is that there is a widespread and growing, increasing belief in the afterlife both in terms of heaven and of hell. Uh, and indeed, the, a belief in the afterlife kind of hovers at around 80% overall. And this number includes an increasing, uh, increasing number of individuals who are otherwise non-religious. Now, it's anyone's guess uh, how it can be that belief, of God, belief in God is decreasing why belief in heaven and hell is increasing. But it's true nonetheless. Now, is this, is this strong and growing belief in an afterlife, uh, you know, maybe a silver lining of some kind, uh, perhaps a, a bit of good news in what is uh, otherwise our culture's uh, slide into secularism? Well, I hate to be Debbie Downer this morning, but when we scratch beneath this thin veneer um, of seeming agreement with our faith, 
we find that our culture's understanding of the afterlife bears little in common with the Bible's view. And the key difference is this. However much people believe in an afterlife, there is a declining belief in the resurrection of the body. And this includes a diminishing belief both in Christ's bodily resurrection as well as, and especially, a declining belief in our own bodily resurrection. So people conceive of the afterlife uh, solely in terms of an ethereal, disembodied, sort of floaty, you know, Casper the Friendly Ghost kind of spirit existence, sort of, you know, kicking back with the angels on a fluffy bed of clouds. Now, please understand that this, that this represents no small defection from Christian belief. The resurrection of the body, the resurrection of the flesh, is the Bible's center of gravity when considering the afterlife. And it's also at the core of the gospel itself, as the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15 tell us, and as Randy Grundyke a couple weeks ago so ably presented when he preached on that text. Now, faulty views of the resurrection are nothing new, and we see from this morning's passage that some of the Corinthians had a problem with this, and this is what called forth Paul's extended treatment uh, aimed at correcting their errors. But these misapprehensions did not die with the church at Corinth of the first century, and sadly, some of these errors still continue today, even within the church, though sometimes in more subtle forms. So, in the passage before us, Paul treats at some length the question of the nature, the nature of the resurrection body. And so because he treats that at some length, that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Now, you might think, oh brother, talking about the nature of the resurrection body sounds awfully theological. Theological! Ooh, I use the dreaded T word. We better head for the exits. Well, okay, full disclosure, all right? We do and we will jump into some pretty heavy-duty theological issues in the first part of this message. And we have to do that in order to unpack what it is that Paul is talking about in this passage. But what we're going to see in the second part of what I want to share with you this morning is that the implications of what Paul is teaching are profoundly practical. They're profoundly practical. And so hang with me <laughs> uh, as we examine the nature of the resurrection body. And once we get, get that clear in our minds, we will then turn our attention to the cash value of a proper view of the bodily resurrection and of the afterlife. So, in the remainder of our time together this morning, we're going to answer two questions. Number one, what is the nature of the resurrection body? And number two, how should a correct view of the resurrection body affect the way we live here and now? 
All right, so fasten your seatbelts. What is the nature of the resurrection body? Well, first of all, the resurrection body is a spiritual body in contrast to a natural body, verse 44. So let's take a look at the words Paul used to describe these two kinds of bodies. The Greek word for spiritual is pneumatikos. And so a spiritual body is a soma pneumatikos. The word for natural in the expression natural body is sukikos. Sukikos is related to another word, the word suke, which is typically translated soul. So we might literally translate sukikos as soulish, but for reasons that are going to become clear in a moment, most Bible translators and commentators prefer to translate soma sukikos as natural body rather than soulish body. All right, bunch of Greek. What's going on here? The basic contrast, the basic contrast is between our present weak, frail and natural uh, and natural bodies, our frail natural bodies as sukikos on the one hand, in contrast to our future resurrection bodies which will be spiritual or a pneumaticos kind of body. When Paul speaks of something as sukikos, he's referring to human beings in their natural state or condition apart from any special empowerment by God's Spirit. In contrast, Paul uses the word pneumaticos or spiritual to refer to something or someone that is empowered by God's Spirit by a special supernatural divine energy. So think for a moment about what he says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. And here Paul makes this contrast exceedingly clear. The natural or soulish or sukikos man does not and cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. And that's because he is someone who is left to his own natural devices apart from a special endowment of divine power. The spiritual man, on the other hand, can and does receive these things. He is one who is specially aided, empowered, energized, actuated by a supernatural, powerful working of God's Spirit. The spiritual man is filled and controlled by the supernatural power of the Spirit. The natural man operates out of his own strength and relies purely on his weak native talents and abilities. All right, so with this distinction in mind, let's explore the two kinds of bodies that Paul talks about, beginning with the so-called uh, natural body. So we start by looking at Adam's body when he was first created, and this is before sin gummed up the works, all right? So according to Genesis 2-7, 
God formed Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils. The result was that Adam became a living soul. Or, shifting to Hebrew now, because we're in the Old Testament, Adam became a nefesh chayah. A nefesh chayah, the Hebrew. The Hebrew word nefesh in the Old Testament pretty much corresponds to the Greek word suke in the New Testament. And is usually translated soul. Uh, and the word chaya means living. Okay, So this is clearly the passage that the Apostle Paul has in mind in verse 45 when he says that the first man, Adam, became a living soul. Or in the Greek language in which Paul wrote, Adam became a living soukain. Right? Now, being made a living soul, a nefesh chaya, simply means that Adam was a living being or an organism in whom was the breath of life. But in this, in this um, particular respect, the kind of life Adam had at his creation was not fundamentally different from other animals who are also living beings. Indeed, the Bible also describes animals as living souls or nefesh chaya in a host of passages. So take a look at Genesis 1, 20, verse 21, 24, Genesis 9, 10, and that's just for starters. There's a bunch of passages that use this expression. Okay? Excuse me. So my parakeet Scupper and I are both living souls, or nefesh chaya. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some things that distinguish me from scupper, okay? Um, specifically, that I bear God's image, and scupper does not. Sorry, scupper. But unlike scupper, I have a mental, a spiritual and a moral likeness to God. But yet, on a biological level, on an animal level, right, Scupper and I are both animated or made alive by a natural or what, I, you know, what we might call an animal kind of life. Scupper breathes air, I breathe air. If Scupper stopped breathing air, he'd suffocate, and so would I. Scupper needs to eat and drink, to live. I need to eat and drink to live. Scupper can harm his body by flying into a picture window or by being eaten by a cat. I can harm my body in a skiing accident or by falling off my roof. All right, so let's get back to Adam before he fell and look at how this works in Adam's case before he sinned as God originally created him and plopped him into paradise. Before sin, Adam had perfect, perfect animal life. And as far as natural or soulish or an animal kind of life goes, Adam's life in the garden was as good as it gets. He was kept from death, disease, sickness, or wasting away. This 
this perfect life that Adam had in the garden was not due to the properties of his body itself. Now remember, his body, when he was first created, before sin, it was a body made out of dust. Mere dust. And as such, it would have been susceptible to decay and death had God left that body to its own devices. But apart from sin, God would not have left it to its own devices. Uh, God did and would have con- and would have continued, would have continued to safeguard Adam from external threats, such as coronaviruses or anvils falling on his head or what you know, you name it. Also, Adam was given the tree of life from which he could eat, and this would replenish, restore, and stave off any corruption from his body that otherwise would have taken place. So think of the tree of life as a kind of, um, I don't know, perpetual fountain of youth. So the point is this. When Adam was first created, he was able to live in perfect health and live indefinitely by virtue of the provisions and protection that God provided. But it also means that when God withdrew these provisions and protections because of Adam's rebellion, his body now left to its own natural tendencies as, what? Dust enlivened by a merely natural power of life would return to the dust from which it was made. All right then, so when we think about Adam's life in the garden before he sinned, which, you know, it's not half bad, right? Uh, and in fact, Adam's life in the garden is one that you and I uh, can imagine without a whole lot of trouble, not a whole lot of difficulty, because in most ways it's pretty much like the life you and I have now, just a lot better. So just like Adam, you and I have the natural breath of life, although our life is, you know, far inferior to Adam's before he fell. So imagine your life just as it is now, but imagine it without being fatigued or catching a cold or having aches and pains or needing corrective lenses or having your memory get foggy uh, or having your body fail with age and things like that. Now, you could imagine that, right? It's not too hard to imagine. And you'd say, wow, that sounds pretty good. I'd be, I think I'd be happy with that kind of body. But listen, even as great as Adam's body was before the fall, it doesn't come close to the body that we're going to have in the resurrection, never mind the messed up bodies that you and I have now. Okay, But, but we're going to get to that in a minute. So, well, let's do that. So consider the spiritual body now. What exactly is a spiritual body? Well, I have to take a little bit of a detour here because of some of the misunderstandings I uh, introduced that people have at the beginning of this message by first saying what a spiritual body is not. A spiritual body must not be confused with a spirit. The text does not say that our body is raised a spirit, 
but that it is raised a spiritual body. And these are not at all the same thing. The spiritual body is, in fact, a body. And, even more than that, it is a body of flesh and bones. Spiritual body is a body of flesh and bones. Now you say, well, well, so how do you know it's a body of flesh and bones? Well, if we want to know what a resurrection body is like, why not look at the only person who has one now? And that person would be Jesus, <laughs> okay? So in Luke 24, 37 through 40, Jesus appears to his astonished disciples after his resurrection. His disciples were terrified and thought that they were seeing a spirit. Well, Jesus disabuses them of this notion, telling them explicitly, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And after saying that, he showed them his hands and his feet. So then a spiritual body, the very body that Christ had after his resurrection and still has, still has, is a body of flesh and bones as tangible as your body and my body. So Paul then is not making a contrast between a physical body and a non-physical body. Rather, he's comparing two types of physical bodies. One is a natural physical body, and the other is a spiritual physical body. Well, okay, so if this resurrection body is a body of flesh and bones, then, well, in what sense is it spiritual? How can it be spiritual if it's flesh and bones? It's spiritual by virtue of the kind of power that enlivens it. As British scholar, a New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright points out, Greek adjectives like soukikos and pneumatikos, ikos kinds of words, if you will, he says this, they describe not the material out of which things are made, but the power or energy that animates them. Not the material out of which things are made, but the power or energy that animates them. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians 2.14, which we already looked at, and we saw Paul's use of natural and spiritual there. The spiritual man, right, is one who is empowered by the Spirit. The spiritual man is not a spirit, like an angel is a spirit, right? The spiritual man is a man with a body, but he is a man who is energized by the Spirit. And likewise, the spiritual body is not a spirit, but it's a body that is energized or enlivened by God's own spirit in a powerful, special, and mind-blowing way. Now, I need to say something about a few verses, and they're in this very chapter, that might seem to run counter to what I just said about the resurrection of the physical body. Um, so, 
permit me to do that because I don't want to leave any lingering questions in your minds. And one of those verses is in verse 45. Um, this verse reads, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Now, some have wrongly concluded, including, including, by the way, the Jehovah's Witnesses who use this verse, to say that Jesus was raised an invisible spirit creature. Some have wrongly concluded from this that Christ was raised as a spirit. Well, I admit this verse is a bit tricky to interpret, but I think that, as always, when we interpret the Bible, we read things in context, and it's important to read verse 45 in the context of Paul's overall argument, and especially because verse 45 follows immediately on the heels of verse 44, which we've just been looking at. And so Paul is developing here his argument in verse 44, again, as we've seen, by contrasting the source of life of the first Adam with the source of life of the resurrected Christ, the last Adam. And he does so by providing a somewhat loose reference to the passage in Genesis 2-7 that we looked at. In that verse, Adam received natural life from the breath of God, thereby becoming a living soul. There, the life Adam received was mere natural or soulish life. And in contrast to that, Christ became a living spirit, meaning that he received a spirit-energized quality of life at his resurrection. Now, I agree with those commentators who believe that Paul here speaks somewhat, somewhat loosely and figuratively, but is doing so to maintain the form, the literary form or pattern that Genesis 2-7 dictates to him, that he's working within that framework. And the pattern is, is Adam became this, Christ became that. Adam became this, Christ became that. So just as Adam is or became a living soul, how? By virtue of having received a soulish or natural quality of life, even so Christ is or became a life-giving spirit by virtue of having received a spirit-empowered principle of life that he in turn grants to others in their own resurrections. Then real briefly, and real briefly, I want to say a word about verse 50, which says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, which here again some may and have taken to um, argue against a bodily resurrection. Uh, now, uh, this verse is going to be covered next. Kenny's going to cover this verse next week, so I won't say much about it. I'm going to leave it to him to say more or whatever he wants to say about it. But suffice it to say, just for, for now, as a number of biblical texts show that use the expression flesh and blood, the focus of the expression flesh and blood is not, is not on physicality or the physical stuff of the human body. Rather, it refers to human beings in their own 
inherent, natural, this worldly life with all of its weaknesses and frailties as opposed to human beings empowered by God's Spirit. But again, I'm going to leave that for Kenny to unpack. All right, so, uh, granting that the spiritual body then is a body of flesh energized by a spiritual principle of life, what are some of the actual characteristics of this resurrection body? Can we say anything more about it? Paul describes our resurrection bodies as imperishable and incorruptible in verses 42 and 50, which he then later connects with the idea of being immortal in verses 53 to 54. Unlike Adam's body when he was created, the resurrection body is absolutely, completely, inherently indestructible. It is utterly unable to fall apart, much less die. The resurrection body is free from even the possibility of all disease, defect, corruption, dissolution, or death. As theologian Charles Hodge put it, there is to be no decrepitude of age, no decay of the faculties, no loss of vigor, but immortal immortal youth. Well, okay, so you might say, but yeah, but is that really any better than Adam's life before he sinned? It sounds about like what Adam had, isn't it? No, it's much better than what Adam had. Unlike Adam's natural body, which possessed, again, before he sinned, perfect natural animal life, our resurrection bodies, they're going to be positively glorious. A number of biblical texts characterize the resurrection body with words and expressions such as shining forth, Matthew 13, 43. Glory and glorious in, in this uh, 15th uh, chapter, 1 Corinthians. Also, look at Philippians 3, 21. It's, it's going to be glorious, shining like the stars, Daniel 12, 3, and, uh, and descriptions of that sort. Now, so what do the biblical writers mean when they describe the resurrection body in such glowing terms or this luminous language? I mean, are, do they have in mind a, sort of a, a literal kind of physical glow or brightness, kind of like when Jesus, um, you know, uh, stood transfigured before Peter, James, and John? Um, I don't know, maybe, could be. We do note we do note that after Christ's resurrection and when he appeared to his disciples, his appearance was, you know, pretty unremarkable uh, as it appeared to them, at least. And, it, you know, it, I, I don't know. I mean, it may be that he kept his glory under wraps or veiled um, because of his particular purposes at the time. And that would be my guess. And I, I think passages such as Luke 24, 16 indirectly suggest something like that could be going on. I, I don't know. So, I, I mean, I must confess that I do not know exactly um, in what this 
glory will consist. The glorious life that we will have in our resurrection bodies defies all comprehension. It's a kind of life that transcends anything in our present day experience. It's not just it's not just like the life we have now minus all the bad stuff, but it's a quality of life that we can't even begin to fathom or describe beyond saying it's glorious. And, you know, why should our inability to describe it surprise us? The Bible tells us, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 Well, we do know that the resurrection body is going to be a body that is busting at the seams with life. Paul uses the word power or dunamis to describe this body. We are going to have mental and physical powers that far exceed anything possible, even for a perfect body, a perfect body made out of mere dust. It will not require food or sleep to stay alive, for God's own spirit is going to be the engine that powers that body. It will be agile, quick of movement, powerful and resplendent, radiant, stunningly beautiful, both in form and in function. So, you know, rather than (laughs) try to explain the inexplicable, I'm going to just leave it at that. But know this, trust me on this, it's a body that is so desirable that if, if we could but for a moment truly grasp how awesome that body is going to be, you and I would be able to think of nothing else. Okay, you've you've hung with me through a lot of theology. And uh, so kudos to you for that. But let's turn to the question, how should a correct view of these matters affect the way we live here and now? Okay? So let me wet my whistle and then we'll dive into this. All right. So we 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 have to not we, we might be tempted to think that what we've looked at this morning is, you know, merely abstract and theological, but if we can but grasp these profound truths and the implications of them, it will change our lives. And let me share three closely inter, closely interrelated ways, but three ways in which our view of the, resurrection, of the resurrection body and of the physicality of the eternal state should affect the way you and I live here and now. First, a correct view of the nature of the resurrection will keep us from an unhealthy attachment to this world. A correct view of the nature of the resurrection will keep us from an unhealthy attachment to this world. Now, I'm convinced that one of the main reasons people may not be excited about, you know, dying and going to heaven forever, 
is that the typical and faulty picture of life after death is unnatural, weird, and unlike anything a person would really enjoy. Sitting on a cloud, strumming a golden harp, or polishing a halo. A, you know, a semi-conscious slumber in which the soul rests in peace. You know, the traditional picture of the, of, of the eternal state as kind of an ethereal, floaty, intangible, interminable, disembodied church service is frankly bizarre and unappealing. So it's small wonder that many professing Christians remain so firmly attached to this present life. Now, I don't care what they tell their Sunday school teachers, right? I, I think it, it's not surprising that, that people are just not so sure they want to sign up for that. Now, this thinking fails, it seems to me, in two ways. In two ways. The first way is that, is that the picture of heaven described here is is pretty messed up to begin with. When we're in heaven, we don't sprout angel wings, we don't sit on clouds, we don't strum golden harps. So, okay, the view of heaven there is is, is got some issues. But second, and I think more to the point, is that heaven is not our eternal home anyway. Rather, we will spend all eternity on a new glorious, resplendent, physical earth with our new, glorious, and resplendent physical bodies. Now, the disembodied state in heaven, uh, when we die, properly understood, properly understood, does represent a superior situation for the Christian when you compare it to the present life. It's a bunch better than being here. And that's because in heaven, while our bodies are still in the grave, but in heaven there is no suffering, no mental anguish, no pain of any kind, no sorrow, and so forth. It's joyful, exceedingly joyful, because we are in Christ's direct presence, we have a direct communication with Him, an immediate presence with Him uh, that we don't have down here. So compared to our life here, when we die and go to heaven, it's a huge upgrade. It's a huge upgrade. But don't confuse better with best. In 2 Corinthians Five. Paul expresses a decided disinclination to be disembodied. Um, he uses the expression uh, unclothed or naked to describe it, and he shrinks back from that as an unnatural state. Now, despite the fact that looking at the big picture, the positives about being with Christ in heaven ultimately outweigh that in his mind. But just the being disembodied part, he's not so keen on that. And Paul is not alone in this. I think that the natural inclination of most people is to find 
the idea of existing without a body as undesirable, as undesirable, considered by itself and, and taking nothing else into account. Not having a body is, is not something we think, oh, I can't wait for that. And that's because we were never designed to live without bodies. We know that intuitively, and I think that that fact is very difficult for many people to get beyond. Now, contrast this, though, with the true biblical picture, which is life on a new earth, uh, as detailed in Revelation 21 and 22. Who would not want to live on a magnificently beautiful and lush earth? Free of air pollution, floods, no earthquakes, no harsh climate extremes, no decay, and everything else about this earth that brings us dissatisfaction and pain. What if we could pursue activities that are similar in many ways to what we do now, only vastly better and purged of all defect and disappointment, including physical undertakings in our glorious bodies that allow us to work with our hands as well as our minds. And best of all, who would not like this? Who would not love this? Who would not long to have unbroken, perfect and direct fellowship with God and ideal relationships of consummate joy and love for one another in an idyllic setting. No social distancing on the new earth, right? Who wouldn't want that? It appears that we're going to eat and drink in the kingdom of God. Not because we have to. Our bodies won't require food to stay alive like Adam's did, but We'll eat because we want to. Eating is something, eating and drinking, is something that gives us pleasure now. We love it. It's fun. We do it with one another. While we don't know this for certain, and this this is kind of speculative, but I'll throw this out for what it's worth, there may be sports on the new earth. I mean, we don't know what the physics of the new earth is going to be like. And whether we would find activities like golf or soccer to be fun, we don't know. But it's, it's not impossible, especially since we will have physical bodies with which to play things like this. Or how about creating works of art? Or composing? Performing music? Or dancing? Which in our present experience involves the body as well as the mind. The Bible talks about new songs, uh, suggesting to me that composers and singers and musicians are still going to have a lot to do. You hearing me, Kenny? (laughs) All right. Um, Might it be that the media through which artists create and perform their craft will involve something physical? I think it's highly likely. Or how about travel and exploration, as well as enjoying other cultures? The Bible tells us that there will be cities on the new earth, 
the new Jerusalem being preeminent among them. There's going to be nations on the new earth, and these will continue to exist as national entities. This indicates to me that there is some kind of social structure and organization so characteristic of life in this age that's going to carry over into the next. And furthermore, I think we're going to have opportunities for continuing service, satisfying occupations, at least if we take what Christ says in the parables of the talents and of the minas at face value, and I think, I think in that respect we can, and we should. All right? Okay, now, so my, my second point, though, and it, it's a direct result of what I just said, is that a correct view of this, if this is really what the afterlife is like, then it should and will energize my devotion to God's kingdom work right now. The last verse of this chapter, which Kenny's going to develop next week, but I have to steal here for a minute, says that as a result of everything Paul taught in that chapter, leading up to that, he says, what he just taught about the resurrection, he says as a result we should be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, why? How does that follow from all this stuff about the resurrection? It's because these truths will stimulate us to reprioritize how we spend our time, our money, and our energies now. You often hear people talk about their bucket list, right? Their bucket list and about all the great things that they feel an urgency to do before they die. You know, life is short. YOLO, right? You only live once. We've got to cram in all the activities, hobbies, traveling, adventures that we can do right now because when we're dead, it's too late, right? Yeah, okay, I'm a Christian. I'll go to heaven someday and that'll be cool and all, but how about all those neat earthly things I don't get to do first? What about all the people that I don't get to meet and the career goals I didn't accomplish and the novel I didn't write and the musical instrument I didn't learn to play and the countries I didn't visit? Nonsense! Nonsense! If you really grasped what I said in that preceding point, you'll realize that we get to do all of these God-honoring things and more. You will miss out on nothing by waiting. And what this should do is make us less worried about frantically trying to cram in everything in this life, realizing that there's going to be plenty of time to accomplish all this and more in the next life and in a much more glorious and supremely satisfying way. Look, there's all kinds of things I'd like to do. But most of them can wait. I'll have all eternity to check off my bucket list. And believe me, since eternity is a really long time, that's going to be one honking bucket list, right? I'd rather spend my time now 
getting in my licks for God's kingdom and enjoy the fun stuff later. Well, now, look, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have hobbies or recreation. These are good gifts from God. We, we can and should enjoy them now, but in their proper place. So take an art class. Learn to play the cello. Write a novel. Go ahead. Go on a European vacation. There's nothing sinful or wrong with doing these, any of these things, and we can do them and should do them to the glory of God even now. These things can renew us. We can glorify God for them. They can give us the rest and relaxation we need so we can get back to work for God refreshed. All right? But my only point is it's so easy for us to lose our focus and our sense of proportion. Our time here is short. And we've got lots to get done for God before we depart. So get busy. And then third and finally, a belief in a glorious afterlife in a spiritual body on a stunningly majestic and beautiful new earth should help us face death with serene confidence and even anticipation. Now, I've heard Eric Taunus say on several occasions that thinking about our death is not something morbid, but good and beneficial, if we do so from Scripture's perspective. And I believe that Eric is spot on in this. Um, as I contemplate my own death, here's what I've concluded, okay? I am ready to die. But I am not ready to die. <laughs> okay? So, um, okay, so how's that? That's clear, right? How's that for ambivalence? Well, look, the Apostle Paul describes his own ambivalence between departing to be with Christ versus remaining here in the flesh in Philippians 1, 23 through 24. <clears throat> now, look, I'm no Apostle Paul, that's for certain. But I, I do think, I, do think I, I, I kind of get what he's talking about. So here's what it looks like for me at any rate and see if you can relate to it, all right? I am ready to die. The more I study about the afterlife, the glorious body I'm going to have on the new earth, uh, and how I'm going to enjoy that, I'm ready to blow this joint. Seriously. This world has much less allure for me than it ever has. And this has been true especially for me since I've done a biblical deep dive into my study of the afterlife. But the events of this year have made that all the more true for me. Now, if the attractiveness of this life were down here, were the only consideration, then frankly, I'd, I'd like to check out before this sermon is over. 
which I suppose would be a tad awkward for the worship team, but <laughs> I'll try not to do that. But, but, but if it were to happen, if it were to happen, right, um, then I would be with Jesus in heaven, which would be awesome. Yes, heaven is awesome. And while I'm in heaven, with my body still in the grave, or I guess up here on the platform, um, I'd be like a kid on Christmas Eve waiting for morning to be able to run downstairs and unwrap my presents. And the present would be the redemption of my body and the new earth, which is glorious beyond imagination. But I don't want to die. At least not yet. I've got too much that I, I hope I can do for God and His cause between now and then. I want to continue to live on this earth for a while. And I want to serve my God a little while longer if He will grant it to me. It's all in His hands. Because why? I want to fulfill my calling my calling and speaking for myself i don't speak for anyone else here i'm speaking for myself i don't feel like i've done that yet so i pray that god will give me a few more years or however many before he calls me home i want to get to the place where the apostle paul was in second timothy 4 7 when he says that he finished the race. Paul got to the place where he could say that. I'm not there. I wish I were there, but I'm not there. And I would like to be there. I want to fulfill my calling. When I stand before the Lord, the greatest reward of all, more than anything else that I've mentioned this morning to you, the greatest reward is to hear the words of Jesus when he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Lord. I want to hear Jesus say to me, Alan, I am really happy with the work you did for me despite your fits and starts and sins and failures, <clears throat> you fulfilled, <clears throat> excuse me, your calling well. <clears throat> Good job. Good job. Now, our Savior's enthusiastic approval is more than just an additional benefit <clears throat> excuse me, benefit or perk of the age to come. It's the very oxygen of the kingdom which makes all of the marvels and benefits and joy and beauty of the new earth immeasurably sweet. Everything, everything in which we will revel will be to our unfathomable delight because it comes to us as the undeserved reward of him whom we hold dearer than our very lives. We will enjoy it 
will enjoy it all because of how much pleasure it will give Jesus as he watches us revel in it. We'll feed off of one another's joy and happiness and delight. So how about you? Every one of you listening to me this morning is going to die. But every one of you has a calling to serve Christ with your gifts, your talents, and your very lives. How have you spent your time on this earth until now? How do you plan to spend the time that remains, whether it's, you know, many years or few? In view of what God has in store for you, how should you be serving Him today? What would He have you do out of gratitude for Him? Are you steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work? Trust me, if you devote yourself to the work of His kingdom, your labor will not be in vain. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the glories that you have in store for us that we can't even begin to understand. May an apprehension of these truths which we pray through your Spirit, you will bring vividly to our minds and hearts. May it loosen the grip that sin and the world has on us. May it energize us to fulfill our callings, that we may be fit vessels for your service. And Lord, may you be pleased in what we do as you guide us in this day and in the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.